that's Herb Alpert and the Tijuana Brass. I'm Meg Rowley, and on this Prospect Week edition of Fangraphs Audio, I welcome lead prospect analyst Eric Longenhagen back to the program. We discuss all things Prospect Week, including, but not limited to, the process of assembling the top 100, how players move up or down in the rankings, Eric's 2021 picks to click, and the upcoming college baseball season. Eric also sings the ballad of O'Neill Cruz and Tanash Thomas, Two Dudes You Should Know. All of that is coming up, but first it is my obligation to tell you that Fangraphs memberships are now available at Fangraphs.com. For the monthly cost of a spring training complex ice cream cone, you can support all the great work at Fangraphs, including all of our Prospect Week content and Eric's team prospect lists, Brendan Golowski's analysis of the trade and free agent markets, Craig Edwards' insights on minor league contraction, and David Lorla's clubhouse interviews. You may also, for a slightly greater sum, purchase an ad-free membership and enjoy Fangraphs without banner ads, facilitating faster loading times. That bit of business being complete, I take you to my conversation with Eric Longenhagen, lead prospect analyst for Fangraphs, which begins right now. It's really amazing that either of us are awake. This is a busy week. <laughs> Hi, Eric. I'm definitely feeling it. Yeah. <laughs> um, and you know, it's as you get older, you really feel it. Yeah. But whatever, it'll be over soon. Yeah. It's Not a really. good. <laughs> it's a it's a busy week. It's a busy time. It's good to learn things about yourself through your job like that you know when you're in your 30s and you stay up very late say into the following morning of a time you you feel it your body's like hey i hate you Don't i was listening that. to some of bill simmons podcast with bob Iger, and Iger pretty casually talked about working 20 hour days once yeah. in a while and it made me feel like not as bad about what you and i did tuesday and wednesday <laughs> Yeah, we should provide the following context to our listeners that it is Prospect Week. I can't imagine people didn't know that because we don't try to keep that secret. We don't try to keep it a secret at all. And so what we thought we would do is with this edition of Fangraphs Audio, we would talk about Prospect Week since your former podcast mate, Kylie McDaniel, is no longer an employee of Fangraphs. And so the untitled McDonaghan project, which would previously have occupied this spot, is now defunct, deceased. It was murdered by a mouse. Yeah, who knows? I'm not sure what will become of that. Yeah, it's at least dormant for the moment. Right, yeah. It's, it, there's like, uh, I forget which Godzilla movie it is, where the like the kid arrives on the island and like Godzilla's sleeping deep in, inside some cave. And it's sort of like that. But when we did the Top 100 chat yesterday, people seemed interested in having a prospect-centric podcast back on the site. So yeah. we'll have to figure that out. Yeah, we might venture into something more casual, certainly more Lynchian in all likelihood. But yeah, we're going to sort it out. We're going to sort that out. Let's talk about Prospect Week and let's talk about the process of Prospect Week because I think that this is interesting to folks, especially as it pertains to the top 100. I feel like you get a fair number of questions about how we go about doing this. And so I guess the most basic of those is, Eric, what is what is your process for assembling this list, which we will uh, concede is not actually a top 100, it is a top 120, because we can't help but go long. 
completist by nature. But how do you go about assembling this list and sort of vetting it and making sure that you haven't forgotten anyone important or um, that you're not overly enthusiastic about anybody? Yeah, so obviously every individual player's overall grade is guided by the future value principles that we've sort of outlined and there's like a lengthy explanation on the site about how that gets determined. And there's one, there's an even longer one in in a book that's coming out in April. What's the book called, Eric? It's called Future Value. Who wrote the book, Eric? Kylie McDaniel and I did. Oh, should people pre-order your book coming? You out should in pre-order April? it. Yeah. All right, there we go. And so, like in short, what we are trying to do is evaluate the player the same as. You would at any point in time over the course of baseball history, like you're scouting this player, you want to incorporate some of the data and the visual scouting report into determining what all of the different components of that player's skill set are, and then map that to war production, what you'd anticipate their war production to be based on those skills. You can do that by, you've got, you know, hundreds and hundreds of players year after year after year generating wins above replacement, you kind of look at what they are doing with their skills and what that means for war production and then map prospect skills to the war scale as well. We want to use the 2080 scale to do that because scouts are familiar with it. It's a really good way to communicate with other initiated people. So that is the way that each individual player is evaluated. Uh, And then obviously for the, the org lists that we had done anyone who's a 50 future value and above, which is the tier of player that we rank hard rank. A bunch of them have already been written up. And then we, it gives us a rough structure of roughly like half of the list. And then we start folding in players from the other orgs who we haven't audited top to bottom yet who belong. And we're very liberal about that and compile a rough list of ordinal rankings there is some secret sauce to the way that that is done so that when we shuttle that those rankings around to folks in front offices, scouts, that they give us feedback. Who's too high? Who's too low? Why? That gets done several weeks in advance of what you see most of the time. There's definitely some late movement. You know, Clark Schmidt was the last guy cut from the list. He was probably cut at like 1 a.m., the night before the list went up. That sounds about right. And uh, you got a you got a panicked message from me. Did we lose a guy? Did I mess something up? <laughs> yes, that's right. We had yeah. 121 guys. Now there's 120. Where did this? Who was it? Yeah, I should. What did I do? Told you that I was doing that. <laughs> but um, but yeah. So the list gets sent around to folks in baseball who up down guys, and all that feedback gets taken into consideration. And players move or they don't. And then a lot of words are written, and a lot of biographical data and tool grades are are checked and polished up but certainly not perfect uh, then some of the uh, the other objective data gets sourced the trackman info that can be found on the, on the board exit velos and spin rates and that gets folded in as well and that can influence how you know, I think about guys and and then we have a list <laughs> and then we have a list. And then we take naps. Yeah, so nine months who, go by and then a list comes out. <laughs> and then a list comes <laughs> So who moved around the most for you during this process? And how are you thinking about weighting 
the advice that you're getting and sort of perspective you're getting from other industry types, whether they're uh, scouts or front office folks versus your own analysis. Because obviously there's going to be disagreements. Sometimes there's consensus, but often there are going to be guys who are controversial. And how are you thinking about that process when you're going through this exercise? Because obviously we value the feedback and appreciate the feedback we get during this process, but you also have your own takes on these dudes. Right, yeah. Ultimately, I do have veto power. And you get to know your sources over time and what certain orgs prioritize, what certain individuals are looking for and prospects, where teams fall on the competitive spectrum right now, and how that impacts how they think about players. And so that stuff is taken into consideration and gets sort of a filter that exists in my own brain as I'm getting feedback from people in front offices. But... Generally, the, the thing that – there are definitely individual players who on the rough draft of the list are intentionally misplaced in order to generate conversation. And it's almost always players who I just want more info on, who are weird for one reason or another. So that is a thing that I tend to do. But yeah, ultimately, top to bottom, you want to apply some sort of uniform logic – while not getting too caught up in data. So some of it is certainly not scientific, but it is always logical if I can help it. And yeah, some of it is, there's a difference between having someone send you feedback that is this guy's too high, this guy is too low, uh, which is very basic and certainly a thing that's taken into consideration and then forces me to do digging on the individuals who I get that feedback on. Sure. But ultimately, yeah, sometimes sometimes you just have to not ignore it, but after considering it, still maintain what what I had. So right. so it, it, there is a balance. There are certainly players who front office and scouts told me were too high or too low that didn't move. But most of the time, their reason for saying something, especially when you send them a list of I mean, some of the early drafts of the list were 150 guys, right? Because you want right. to know that if, if a guy is ranked 140th and someone says he's too low, and then on the next iteration of the list, he's 110, you pass that around and he's still too low. Like, you just want to cast a wide net right? initially to make sure that you're not missing anybody. And so, yeah, it's 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 an interesting process. You really do kind of use different grades of sandpaper over time to get it to where you want. And then ultimately you're still wrong about a lot of it because there's just so many variables that impact whether or not each individual player succeeds. Sure. Well, and this year was different than the process the last couple of years because we had Kylie's departure sort of mid-process. And I imagine that that afforded you some freedom that you were probably keen to not have go to your head, but did allow you to move some guys around. Can you tell us who you who moved the most after Kylie left and you were free to do what you wanted? There, <laughs> it's so it's so unkind of me to ask that question, but I'm asking anyway. It wasn't a whole lot. There were and are some players individually who we differ on. It's never wildly different. Right, sure. Like if Kylie and I were, were doing two separate lists, right? If I were to give him – if we were both doing the Yankees list separate, say, it's it's pretty unlikely that – except for maybe someone at the very, very bottom – that one of our lists would include a player that the other ones didn't at all. 
Right. And it's also pretty unlikely that I would have a 50 or better on a player that that he has like a 40 or something on. Right. That's so it's there's never such wide ranging disagreement. There's disagreement about how to value certain profiles. Some of the individuals on the list who I mean you can just see it kind of in the future values here, right? Like the guys toward the back of a future value tier, I just feel less good about yeah. than the ones towards the front of it for whatever reason. So, you know, Drew Waters scares me. Mm-hmm. His approach terrifies me. I watched him with Team USA during Premier 12 trials in Arizona last fall and watched him swing at, you know, f- he saw five pitches and four at-bats that I saw. That's like a Denny Hatcheveria territory. Uh, and so that was kind of concerning. His right-handed swing is not good. So stuff like that bothers me about certain players. But, you know, that's why he's at the back of his tier. Ultimately, right. the differences in, in opinion are not that wide. And we spent a lot of time together before he split, really hammering out the the basically the 55 future value tier and up. So um, almost all of the uh, the changes that were made after he left were done via front office feedback and rather than some individuals that we disagreed about. Yeah, I do not say this as if it is a, a strange or a logical question for us to get after we have a member of our staff leave, but I was amused somewhat by the questions in my chats after Kylie's departure. They're like, what are you going to do? I was like, we didn't learn that he's leaving today. You learned he was leaving today. <laughs> Yeah, we and knew before that, <laughs> like Kylie's my buddy, and good yeah, for him. We you like know. Kylie, yeah. But uh, and a lot of people have reached out for one reason or another after they learned that he was going to split, and so it is sort of the elephant in the room. I suppose this is a, a more public place of doing it than on whatever individual Eric talks into his phone while the voice recorder's on podcast that it might be on the horizon for me. But like, let me just say that I appreciate people reaching out. I appreciate people's interest in working with me on this stuff. A lot of people have had nice things to say about our coverage in general as they have reached out. But for now, just because we're in the middle of lists and the college season starts this weekend and all that stuff, it doesn't make sense to pause and consider whether or not we want to hire someone else and then go through that process and then get that person up to speed and then dive back into doing org lists and stuff. So this is for now, it's it's just going to be me. And so I appreciate people's interest, but please stop. That's a dream. <laughs> I've, got, I've got way too many players to think about, uh, but I, I do appreciate folks, you know, reaching out and, and almost always having nice stuff to say. And also, you know, some of it too is um, people telling themselves, you know, if you only reached out post Kylie's departure announcement, it means you didn't know he was going. Until he announced it, and that's a red flag to me. Like if if you if you're gonna be if you're gonna do this, you've got to be sourced up in a way that you know Kylie's going before the rest <laughs> of the world does. So, you know, be careful, folks. Be careful. We're constantly evaluating is the takeaway here. Let's talk about the top 100 more. Okay. You like Tanaj Thomas? Yeah. You ranked him right behind fellow right-hander Hunter Green. I think that we are higher on him than a lot of other public-facing publications. So tell our listeners why they should also like Tanash yeah. Thomas. Very, very intentionally back-to-back with Hunter Green because they're very similar. 
and this is a th I should say this is a this is another sort of filter through which you evaluate the list as you're assembling it, right? Like guys who are demographically similar will kind of get evaluated together to make sure that you have them ranked correctly relative to one another, right? So right-handed pitchers, future relievers, you know, the dreaded right-right first baseman profile, that sort of thing. You're thinking about these guys in conversation with one another in addition to where they fall in the ordinal ranking. Right, yes. Yeah, so... If you have two players and they're exactly the same in every way, except one is three years younger than the other, right. or one is a couple levels ahead of the other, or one of them has a history of injury and the other does not, like these are the types of things where it helps you line individuals up. And so as far as Tanaj and Hunter Green are concerned, they're both they both have two-way or conversion arm pedigrees they're both big prototypical 6-4 righties who look like most of the top of the rotation dominant starting pitchers throughout the history of baseball right these big broad-shouldered 6-4 guys you know built like Jake DeGrom and also you know DeGrom is a conversion arm too mm -hmm. and a th another useful tool in doing this is to trace it's to trace back through the paths that our current excellent big leaguers took on their way there. And so if you look at someone like DeGrom specifically and work backwards through his path toward becoming what he is, at one point, this is what he was, right? It was like Hunter Green. It was like Tanaj Thomas. There weren't a lot of miles on the arm. Mm -hmm. The body looked like this. The delivery looked like this. The athleticism was like this. And there was just big time arm strength super loose, fluid deliveries, well-balanced, uh, very repeatable. And you just sort of hope that the rest of the stuff comes because uh, these individuals are so athletic and malleable. And so, like, as far as Hunter Green and Tanaj Thomas are concerned, the arm strength is there. Tanaj has been up to 100 already. He hasn't been pitching very long. He's been pitching for, like, about two years. He's converted infielder who the Pirates acquired for Jordan Luplo. Uh, he's Luplo. under the radar because he pitched. He's barely pitched. He was on the Arizona backfields, and then he was in the Appy League, which isn't, you know, the it's not double A, right? He's not, his arrival in the big leagues is not imminent, so he sort of gets shuttled to the back, right? He's a wait and see. He's a wait and see. But really, a guy with this type of arm strength and build and athleticism has huge, huge ceiling. The potential for him to be that type of Jake DeGrom player exists, whereas for a lot of other pitching prospects, it just simply does not, right? Right. And especially because of Craig Edwards' research on the site about uh, which prospects are, are valuable more so than others, the potential to be that type of guy, even if it isn't likely, has value. And so he and Hunter Green, I think, you know, Hunter Green's breaking ball before he broke was a little bit ahead of uh, where Tanaj's is right now, and he has two of them. And so that was a little bit of a separator, even though Green has had a TJ and Tanaj has like a very low mileage arm at this point. But yeah, as far as like the athletic projection, all that stuff, I think they belong very close to one another on an overall list because they're just, when you stand back and look at them, they're just so, so similar. And right. uh, you have to examine guys like that to... To, to, and have that perspective, I think, to, to line them up a little bit better than, than if you're just like, yeah, he's in the Appy League, you know, he throws right. really hard, whatever. No, right. like this is this is someone who's 
potentially very, very special. Do you want to sing your ballad of O'Neill Cruz now? <laughs> yeah. Do you think do you think that I am not disputing your ranking of O'Neill Cruz, to be clear, when I ask the question in that snarky sort of way. I just know that you really love O'Neill Cruz. You just sure? want to hear me sing on the pod? Oh, you don't actually have to sing your ballad. But you fancy O'Neill Cruz. Got a thing for O'Neill Cruz. That yeah. sounds different than I mean it to also. <laughs> I, you know, there's so much criticism of prospect writers and some of the language that they use around uh, around prospects. And some of that is right. But some of it is just sometimes it's hard not to sound amorous, I think. Oh, yeah. My, at times, my writing is overtly sexual. <laughs> but, yeah, like, look, with Cruz, it's another similar to Tanaj Thomas, where you have to examine the range of potential outcomes. Mm-hmm. And this is – this dude is freakish, right? I had uh, an international director who saw Cruz in the Fall League who described him as alien <laughs> in talent and physique – and he's just – he's a six foot seven shortstop. I cannot believe that in the last year, the rate of scouts who think this guy might be able to stay there has actually grown. There's certainly people when, who don't I remember like him. when we talked about him sort of the first time, there was an expectation that he would, by the time we were ranking guys again, that he would have already moved off of the position, right? Really, this can't be a thing that happens. And then yeah. Now it has. The last little bit when he was here in Arizona before the Dodgers traded him to Pittsburgh for Tony Watson, I think. A Dodgers player dev guy told me that Cruz in spikes is 6'8". And yeah, he's just, he's got monster lefty power. He's got an 80 arm. I had one scout, this is well over a year ago, tell me that an athlete like this with arm strength like this just belongs on the mound. Can't believe this guy's not on the mound. Yeah. The swing is not totally dialed in. The approach is certainly kind of an issue. This guy likes to swing. If you think that a guy who has 80 raw power projection, right, with his body and the fact that he's got the level of power he does right now, slapping an 80 future grade on the power is absolutely justifiable. And I've done it. Uh, and I had an analyst tell me that he thinks that he has measurable 80 raw right now. If you think he might stay at shortstop and have 80 raw, even if some of the other aspects of the contact profile are a problem, Great. then he belongs way, way, way high on an overall pref list. And then when you start looking at the other possible outcomes, okay, he moves to third base. He moves to center field. His long speed is, is sufficient enough that he's potentially viable in center field. And it sounds like if things don't work out at shortstop, that that is the next place Pittsburgh will try him is in okay. center field. Even if you think he ends up in right field or maybe the world's biggest target at first base, you know, obviously those outcomes are less incredible, but they're still not bad, right? Right. And then the thing that gave me a little bit more confidence in the aspects of the hit tool coming around, because you get worried about guys with lever length like this striking out a ton, is if, if you're looking for a body comp in baseball for Cruz, it's Aaron Judge... And like, that's kind of it, right? Right. Uh, there's not a lot of precedent for hitters like this succeeding. Judge is one. And at the same age, when Judge was 21, he was striking out a lot at Fresno State. Right. And Cruz is striking out about 
an average-ish amount at high A and double A as a 21-year-old. So to me, for someone who I do expect to take a while to fully actualize because hitters this size typically do, right? that's really encouraging. So yeah, yeah. I'm just nuts for him. He's I spoke before about how I like would intentionally boost guys to force conversations. This was the dude who I did that most overtly with <laughs> when I, he was in the top 10 when I sent the list around just because I wanted pe- to talk about O'Neill Cruz with people. <laughs> but yeah, it is – it could be super duper huge and again, I just think the, the the fact that that possibility exists is is reason enough to, to be really excited even if – even if the, the chances that he falls short of that to some degree are pretty high. Yeah. So – we do the top 100, or you, well, we should say, you write the top 100 and I edit the top 100. You do the top 100, we do the top 100, and then there are guys at the back of that who fall off the top 100, or even the top sort of 120 as it actually gets constituted. And some of those guys, if they have not previously been 50'd, or have not previously appeared on this list, end up on your picks to click article. And these are guys who you are projecting will end up on the following years in the 2021 top 100. And your hit rate last year was about 29%, uh, which seems pretty good, although we don't really know what that means yet. We don't really know. But we know that this is starting to emerge as the baseline because this is the second year in a row that you've ended up sort of in that range. What are some of the attributes that might push a guy from the back of the 100 down into that picks-to-click range? Yeah, they kind of they kind of come from both directions, right? Because some of the individuals on the list, especially the teenage pitching, like they're coming up from below, right? Mm-hmm. They're ascending. So it is sort of a thing that's occurring in both directions and a lot of it is the, the stuff I've talked about before. It's frames and athleticism and swings and deliveries. Uh, so that is definitely one thing. It is, you know, the the old school scouting bodies and physical tools. Some of it is statistical freaks who, you know, before you get very comfortable with them being statistically freakish, you want to see it over a larger sample or you want to shoot sure. against better competition. Some of it is speculation on skills that are undervalued or overvalued that may not be in the future. So this year on the list, there are a bunch of catchers who traditionally would not expect to stay back there, but in anticipation of having robot umps they may be able to, and then suddenly they become very interesting because they can really hit. So that was one specific category. And it's, yeah, it's just guys who you can't justify sticking on the 100 yet because when you do start to compare them to the players who are on there, there are just things that that force them to be a shade behind. So like the really good example of this is Francisco Alvarez with the Mets. A lot of people, and myself included, really like Francisco Alvarez – He was a 19-year-old catcher. Was he 19 or was he 18? He was a teenage catcher in the Appy League, right? Definitely had scouts I I trust telling me that this guy absolutely belongs in the 100, especially given the state of catching at the big league level. But the rate of attrition for teenage catchers is very high. And I've got other catchers on the list, like Yvonne Herrera with the Cardinals, who he's also – he's 19 and he's several levels ahead. He performed in the fall league against very advanced pitching. He's shown that his offensive ability, catchers just get beat up and 
it really dilutes yeah. what they're able to do offensively. He's shown an ability to hold that over a longer season than Alvarez has. And so when you start comparing apples to apples with some of these players across you know the entire spectrum of the minors, some of the guys, even as much as I like them, just force themselves down right. uh, a little bit. You can't justify having them on the same level as someone who is very similar, but you know, like as the case with Herrera and Alvarez, like a couple levels apart or whatever it may be. So some of the players get pushed down because of that. So, and then some of it is just the, we've had a version of this the last couple of years where it's just like this, you know, the, what are we missing here? Statistical performer type guys. Uh, And this year, the category uh, that is sort of grounded in that type of thinking is the vertical fastball movement types. This is the the trait du jour that teams are seeking in pitchers that they acquire. Uh, it's Z break or ride or carry or life or whatever you want to use to describe it on the fastball. It's a lot of guys with backspinning fastballs that have vertical movement through the zone, stuff that hitters swing underneath at the top of the strike zone. And so that is certainly a new thing that I'm very mindful of that I'm looking for in, in the players that I'm watching now and then some of them were just uh players that as i was passing around the hundred people in baseball were like hey this guy is not on here at all and and belongs on here and so there's a bunch of those guys on the picks the click as well and and yeah 30 percent hit rate the last two years i really don't know <laughs> how whether or not that's whether or not that's good that's, but um yeah but i hope next year that we have something maybe we'll rename it after chris davis next year if if we have a third year in a yeah. row where the batting average as it were is exactly the same yeah dan was so upset when he did the a's zips and finally had moved off a 247 average projection he he was like dan does not put his thumb on the scale with zips even when he sometimes thinks that it is wrong because you know that would be bad analysis or bad projection but he was he was actively bummed about davis's average projection because it's not it's not there anymore alvarez was a it was is 18 now he's a young 18 a young 18 he turned 18 in november there you go and so he was 17 in the appy league so like that is very yeah. impressive right that but is, it's just yeah yeah but i just teenage yeah. catchers are terrifying yeah the attrition rate as you noted is super high i think some of the things that you're thinking about in this list as you're grouping these dudes is like the, with the vertical movement on their fastball is sort of interesting. You had a note in your prospect limbo piece. This is the piece that you, where you take guys who are no longer technically prospect eligible, but sort of fit better under the purview of a prospect analyst because they're not established big leaguers either. They haven't really, you know, taken hold in in the majors yet. You noted when you're talking about draw cotton that your zealousness, which you described as overzealousness, so I'll describe sure. it that way too although I'd never be quite so judgmental, um, was about sort of not having a full understanding of how fastballs play. And I'm curious if there are other, I've heard you talk about this on panels, but for people who have not benefited from that, we can talk about it now, about sort of other bits of data or trends within baseball or things you've noticed on the high speed or types of dudes that you're just thinking about differently now than you did a couple of years ago. Like what, what do you wish you could go back and tell 2016 Eric about? Oh gosh. We'll limit it to baseball because 
otherwise, it's very personal as a question. But what are some of the things that you wish you could go back in time and tell 2016 Eric? Like, hey, notice this and think about it differently than you do. Short the housing market. No, the some of it is just a lot of our game is changing very quickly and has right. been for the last five years. What tech has done with player evaluation and player development has changed what a lot of the industry is looking for. And so, yes, there are certain old school scouting maxims that are true and certain ones that are not. Teams are learning more about approach angle. Teams are Mm -hmm. learning more about, well, have learned more about spin efficiency and the importance of that and spin axis and the importance of that and how a lot of these things work in concert together to make pitches that are just more effective than what we used to think of. So players like Aaron Sanchez, when back in the day, watching that guy at double A, I was so excited. It was like 94 to 97 with big time sinking tail and just a really excellent curveball. His changeup was just okay. It was like so firm. It was almost working like a two-seamer in the 88 to 90 mile an hour range and it was sawing some dudes off and... I was just so, so excited, but now I know that that guy's breaking ball and fastball, as they were currently constituted, just do not pair well together. I would not have been so super duper high on Kyle Wright coming out of Vanderbilt for the same reason. Like it is just some players, especially pitchers, their their arm slot is just what it is, right? If you're going to make a a drastic change to it, you risk injuring them or setting them back in some other way. And so, yeah, there are lots of little individual things like that that are really impactful. And some of it, too, is approach-driven stuff. You know, the players who I've been lower on initially, less inclined to hop on for one reason or another, It's some of it is it's approach-type stuff, swing decisions and understanding what pitches to attack, stuff that's harder to recognize. Sure. When your looks at a player are limited because of the scope. Right. Right. Like it's like that scene in Ferris Bueller where they're at the art museum and that pointillism painting, you know, the, the instrumental version of the Smith song is playing and you get different zooms of the the pointillism. And when you're standing back and looking at the whole painting that is the minor leagues, you can only spend so much time with the thousands of players that you're responsible for evaluating. And so how well they pick and choose pitches to swing at is one of the more, it's like one of the finer detailed things that over the span of 15 at-bats, you can't really discern. And things like walk rate are informative, but not really perfect ways of going about assessing that. And so I would, I would love to like, still, I, to this day, I would do horrible, horrible things if I could have like Z uh, Z swing and O swing percentages for minor leaguers in a spreadsheet. Oh my gosh. Like that would be so helpful if anybody out there listening wants to send me one. That would be so great. (laughs) Save Eric from a life of crime. (laughs) (laughs) Whatever. Like it's, it's journalism. So it's fine. I'm protected by journalism. No, no, no. I mean, in terms of the bad things that you would do, just like save, save him from a life of crime. Oh yeah, yeah. We're trying I to would... look. Trying to avoid baseball crimes. 
It's too but much I'm, baseball crime. Too much baseball crime. Yeah, look, if anybody any... needs a body disposed of and has a really <laughs> uh, fleshed out track man spreadsheet of the whole minors, oh, I've I've got access. I, my chem teacher from high school and I are very close, and so I have access to all sorts of things that solvents. Uh, <laughs> so p- please get in touch with me. <laughs> He's not saying he'll actually do it. He is saying that the desert covers a lot of stuff. <laughs> Just saying. The coyotes are not close enough to my house to to pick a body clean. We're glad about that. You have cats. Yeah, that would be bad. We don't want we oh, don't want gosh. the we don't want those coyotes close at hand. The way Archie approaches other neighborhood cats is like, hey, hey, I'm Archie. How's it going? Probably does not bode well in the event that there's <laughs> yeah, we don't even that. a loose dog in my neighborhood. He'd probably be like, hey, buddy, how's it going? We and going then end up in friends? someone's mouth. Yeah. Is this like the film Milo and Otis? I don't know why I always impersonate cats the same way. They don't sound the same. It's very rude of me. I'm sure they don't all have that dopey voice. (sighs) I'm the worst. Another part of... I'm just going to do awkward transitions now because I'm done talking about your cat. So today, when this podcast goes live, it'll be Friday, which is when the Division One season kicks off, which means that college baseball starts today. And uh, some of it is just right there in your neighborhood. But you, you also, for Prospect Week, did an updated draft ranking for the 2020, 2021, and 2022 draft classes. Uh, those are all mooshed together on the board if people are interested they can also be viewed in isolation but if you're like hey let's look at all the guys they're all there for you in one view thanks to sean uh so thanks sean um but for the people who didn't read your draft update piece which is very silly they should do that but for those who didn't let's talk about some of the early trends that you see with respect to this draft class so the 2020 class what's emerging as sort of early scuttlebutt it's I feel so weird exciting saying people are so I don't excited like about it, it. I know you're so excited about the class. I just want to clarify why I say scuttlebutt instead of dope, which I know is accepted vernacular, but I, I just don't think I can pull it off, I think is the thing. So I will not affect an access to vocabulary I don't have, and I'll just say, what's the what's the scuttlebutt? What's the word? Appropriating scout uh, culture. I just, I know, I know my place. I respond to coach, but don't deploy it. Let's put it that way. Uh, I don't deploy coach either. Although, maybe, I nah, think- no, I don't think that. This just doesn't feel right yeah i don't think i i don't think i've earned i'm not a scout so i haven't earned scout stuff it's fine it's exciting the the draft classes appears very deep i'm gonna have michigan and vanderbilt on opening day i'm gonna have max meyer from the righty from minnesota is gonna face oregon that night i'm just gonna be driving around the valley all weekend with just applying lots of sunscreen so that i don't start the year on the wrong foot like i did last year and Very then by important. Monday, I have to, like, I'm just peeling at the field. But yeah, it's it's a good, strong draft class. The college pitching is especially good. I actually talked to Kylie today about a bunch of the junior college arms that we've seen the last couple of weeks. And that group is is looking strong, too. I've got a, a couple um, Juco arms to add to the board just based on talking to Kylie today. He was in the panhandle. See, everybody's still friends. Yeah. Yeah. And so, yeah, it's very exciting. And people, if, you, if you're if you starved for baseball, and I assume that most of you are, put on ESPN, you know, the app or whatever this weekend and watch some college ball. And I think the, the MLB4 tournament in Scottsdale is going to be streaming somewhere on the MLB website. So, like, put it on and, and, yeah. and just try it on. Yeah. 
because it's not always great baseball, but it is baseball, isn't it? And it, it's not – the ways it's not great are so great. <laughs> right. That is more your speed. <laughs> That's more my speed. But for the people who are like, I don't know, this is going to be bad baseball, I say to you, you're not wrong. And so – <laughs> yeah, it is yeah. it is bad baseball in the best in a very in the best way. Megable way. In a very megable way. <laughs> but uh. but yeah, so I just encourage people to expose themselves to it. It is a lot of fun. And like go if you if you're really nuts about this, go to the board and see what high school kid is closest to you on the board. And like go take a drive one day when yeah. that guy's team is playing. Like it's it's pretty interesting to see. You'll see all the scouts there, and it is it is more at your fingertips than you realize. And yeah. it's a lot of fun. It's one of those things that in June when the draft rolls around and you see the name of the random dude you went you drove to Princeton to see because he was a thirty five plus on the board, and that guy goes like it's it's feels cool. Yeah, I'm just like you know hearkening back to my early days of doing this way back in twelve years ago. And that feeling is – you feel not a sense of ownership. That's not a great way of describing it. But you, there's a connection there. Right. Like the way that I feel about Matt Bowman's career is different than it would be if I hadn't gotten in my car that day to go see him. Right. And even though he's basically an up-down big leaguer, like it is so – it's just cool. It's just gives, yeah. It adds color to your baseball-loving experience in a, an indescribable way that I really love. Yeah, it certainly serves to de-anonymize those guys so that when you're sitting there um, draft day, you know who folks are. And I think that you you look around in those moments and are like, oh, I that guy's close at hand. You know, like uh, it was it was great fun to realize that there was like a first rounder in almost literally in my backyard last year because yeah. the the fields that Lakeside were. Corbin Carroll went to high school, plays their home games, is a 10-minute drive from my house. And so, you know, you sit there and you're like, ah, look at that. I saw that guy. It was very cold. So if you live in a warm part of the country, you can have that same experience, but you won't have the immediate, like, sense memory of being freezing because it's April in Seattle. So good on you for making better uh, residential choices than I have. Are there guys that you're going to see this? I know that you get to see some of the creme de la creme because you get Vandy. Who are you most excited to see in MLB4? Yeah, Austin Martin. <sighs> Austin Martin, the Vanderbilt, <laughs> whatever you want to think he is, shortstop, third base, second base, center field, depending on who you talk to. Mm-hmm. That's speaking of guys who it's valuable to watch them over and over and over again to see what the ball strike recognition is like. He is one of those guys. So I'm very excited to see him and Kumar Rocker is going to throw on Saturday. I saw Kumar early last year and was he was not good. And then towards the end of the year, he no, was he, unbelievable. Yeah, he was their Friday night guy for this tournament last year. And I think we were all like, uh-oh, maybe he made a bad choice not going to into the draft and yeah, then by the his... end of the year we were like never mind <laughs> right <It's> fine. <laughs> his stuff was down in high school towards the end right and pitching so hard because some of some of the time it's recency bias and some of the time it's a trend that is real up or down mm-hmm. go look at shane bieber's sophomore year at uc santa barbara versus his junior year and you realize, oh, if we had looked at the entire body of work rather than what was going on closer to the draft, we would have been more correct about this guy. Yeah. 
So that sort of applies. So all the Vanderbilt guys, Austin Martin, chief among them. And then, you know, Spencer Torkelson at Arizona State. Whether or not I see him this weekend, I don't know because he's another guy who's almost literally in my backyard. Like I can ride my bike to see Torque. So he's he's on the list as well. The first trip that I'm excited to take is it's Mississippi State at Long Beach State. So that's, that's a good one. I'll see JT Ginn, who was uh, one of the many unsigned high schoolers from a couple draft classes ago. He is draft eligible this year, and he's a potential top 10 pick. He'll be going at Long Beach. And the other trip that I'm excited to make is the one later in the spring back home to Pennsylvania. Nick Bitsko. Great. Yes, it's great. He's a high school righty from Central Bucks East High School in PA, and he was originally a 2021. He reclassified to graduate this season, and so I have to get in and see him. And so I'm excited to, you know, go home, see the fam, go up and down the Northeast a little bit, seeing guys for the draft and some early minor league action while I'm there. And so those are the things now as I'm as I'm gearing up for the spring that I'm excited to go do. And I guess I should probably do some some book signings while I'm out on the road too. So I will, this is unusual for me, but there throughout the spring, you will, people will know where I am because I'll be, <laughs> I'll be writing my name in yeah. those places. Right. For your book, which is called. This is, it's, we're not doing radio, so there's no reason to no, go. No, I know. But you gotta say it. Again. I know, we're talking you, gotta, with, uh, you, you should Meg get Rally. in the habit. Yeah. If you're just joining us on this podcast, we're. <laughs> Joined yeah, by lead, lead Fangraphs prospect analyst Sarah Klangenhagen, live from Tempe. No, but you have to get in the habit of saying it. I know, it just feels weird. I know it does, but that's why you have to get. Kylie and I have a bet about who's going to talk about your book more <laughs> in the coming months, me or you. And he. Well, I don't tell me, me. Well, I guess I know from the tone of your voice. Yeah, he thinks it's me. So I'm just, I'm just saying. All right. What is going to be the more pained? repetitive draft joke tanking for torque or someone gonna i feel like someone's gonna try to do like an austin martin aston martin thing i feel like that's coming for us when you google austin martin it corrects you to aston martin yeah this is gonna happen i'm saying people are gonna make that joke so that's coming because the draft order is already set it doesn't matter so you i guess have that's to true look at the 2021 yeah. class yeah that's true the tanking for torque already happened Right, yeah. So now we're talking about like Kumar Rocker. Mm, so what is? Good, there's oh, got to be something. Good there's got to be something there, right? Oh yeah. Fumar for Kumar. No. With like a joint or something. Mm, no, <laughs> that <funny>? one's. <laughs> right. A lot of NBA players are. Jack Leiter gonna... is a draft eligible sophomore in 2021. So it's yeah. like, well, you could. There's a lighter and a Fumar. Yeah. Joke somewhere I, in there. I feel like you know. Rocker the house is probably coming for someone. Someone's going to make some bad choices. Just just remember, everyone, and I say this as a person who does puns, you don't have to pun. We can be more selective in our punning so that people enjoy it more. Like, be the change you want to see in the world, I think, is what what we're going to get at there. Um, what was the, what was the genesis of, of the clever phrasing? It, was it even – it was probably an NBA draft – Related thing, right? Why am I? Was it the Durant Odin draft when the talk of intentionally tanking for generational talent via some clever phrase was invented? I don't know. What was it? I should know. I mean, I am an enthusiast. 
Although if it emanated from, I guess if it was the Durant draft, then it was still in the time when I cared about such things. But I, yeah, I just don't. Yeah, and I guess we have Blaze Jordan. We could do all kinds of bad. Play badly for Adley was the one that I was all about. Yeah. But yeah, there had to be. There was definitely a like Prometheus. Oh yeah. Phrase at some point. I forget when it was. It might have been. I I can't remember. It feels like it has to have been a fairly recent sort of invention, given the recent prevalence. Spaz of- for Daz, when Daz Cameron mm, was like the most famous terrible. high school on the planet, was a clever really- phrase. And yeah, suck for puck was one. Mm, terrible. It just moves away from some of this vocabulary generally. Terrible. We're coming up on 55 minutes, and so okay. I'm going to ask... If you want me to make a pained and labored transition from the draft to the Astros, who will not be participating in the upper rounds, or if we want to just not talk about the Astros this time and all of their recent shenanigans. I just want people to know that there's construction going on at the house across the street. So if you hear that, it is that is why it is not because I, I haven't been am able- living in a Robert Eggers film. Um <laughs> So yeah, I mean the I slept through the Jim Crane presser this morning. Yeah. Because of Prospect Week. And so I did not hear the timbre in that man's voice as he said what the internet despised so. And also, you know, talk about putting player evaluations through my own brain filter based on who I'm talking to. The <laughs> what the internet's outrage about things also goes through a filter in my brain. But yeah, it ain't good. Right? Yeah. I haven't written or talked about the Astros cheating stuff because there are people much better equipped than I am at the site to do that. It's rough. And the power of attention, like your attention and anticipation, is very powerful, right? Like, just go play MVP Baseball 05 and put the setting on where the color of the ball changes depending on what pitch is about to come. And then take it off and try to hit, you know, like it's going to be different. Right. Yeah. I'm not as quick to levy judgment, right? I don't know what I would have done if I were in that clubhouse and someone was like, here's this magic pixie dust that's going to make you mash and we're going to win. So I'd like to think that I would be like, hey, man, this is wrong, dude, right? Like it's goofus and gallant. Yeah. But I, I know I'm human and competitive. And, you know, have Slytherin attributes. So who knows what I would have done. But the preening in the dugout after you went deep off a pitch you knew was coming, that would not be my thing. The Irish Catholic guilt would set in as I round first base, you know. And I'd be like, oh, this is gross. Yeah. But I imagine that Jim Crane's – I don't – it wasn't defiant – but contradiction within the span of a few moments right? about whether or not he thought it was impactful for his team's success and just his general, like the tepid nature of some of the apologies that were espoused today. It's frustrating. It's not a great look. I'm not the kind of person who I don't feel satisfaction when people like prostrate in front of me and beg for my forgiveness. So I don't, I don't know what they could say that would make me right. feel like, ah, you know what? All right. All right, guys. All right. Let's move on. Like, I don't know what it would take for me to feel that way. Yeah. I certainly don't think that they were the only team doing it. No. And 
I think maybe it runs a little deeper and more extreme in this instance than with some of the other teams who are probably doing something similar. It's not hard to watch broadcasts and see who's got their own proprietary cameras behind home plate. You know what I mean? Like the Yankees have cameras installed on either side of home plate so that theoretically, depending on the handedness of the batter, you can you still have a clear line of sight toward the pitcher. What we know, well, I guess I don't know, but what people in baseball have told me teams do, no one has specifically mentioned the Yankees or anybody else, is take video after the game and overlay it, right? We see people, yeah. you know, the pitching ninja does overlays in real time practically yeah. to see subtle variations in the overlay and identify ways that pitchers might be tipping pitches. And as I've been made to understand it, that process occurs later. Like, you know, you're collecting all this video and then somebody processes it and identifies how a glove might be held differently or what, you know, whatever it may be. And then that is put in an advanced report for later. I don't know of anybody else doing stuff in, in real time. Right. But technology is a powerful thing. So powerful that it kind of scares me sometimes. And I think the possibilities are pretty vast as far as their applications for stuff like this. And I wonder what's happening in other sports too. And I don't relish at what we're about to experience this year as it relates to the Astros and their on-field interactions with other teams. Like, what do you think? I don't know who they play opening day. But, like, what do you think the repercussions are going to be as far as, like, the social repercussions, I I guess, is the way I'd phrase it, as far as the way other teams handle their interactions with Houston. If you were managing the Cubs or the A's and it's your first series in April against Houston, what are you doing? How are you handling that? Houston opens at home against the Angels. So that's who they're, they got. All right. So, first. wait, who do they have on the road first? That's really the relevant question. The home opener sort of doesn't matter because you're going to be in front of a friendly audience. Then they go to Oakland. Yeah. If you're Joe Madden, what do you tell your yeah. opening day starter to do? Is there chin music? How I are mean, you? I, yeah. I think, I think Houston will set a record for hit by pitches this year. I think that. They're going to get buzzed. Their hitters are going to get buzzed for sure. I think the fans are going to bring trash cans. I think <laughs> it's going to happen for sure. There are going to yeah, be some great amazing. signs. Oh, the signs that fans are going to make. <sighs> I don't want to. I, I should say, like, I don't want Alex Bregman to get hit by pitch a lot. I'm not advocating for that, but I just think it is likely. No, nor do I. But... I think that that seems likely that they'll get plunked a fair amount. I think that there are some ballpark DJs who are about to have a lot of fun. So I, I think it'll follow them. It's going to be a part of their season narrative when they're on the road, for sure. There are just too many guys, especially pitchers, who have come out and been willing to be angry in public. And I, I don't say that like they shouldn't be mad, but have been willing to be angry in public since this first got reported for us to think that it's going to go away. And I think some of the apologies that we saw after the press conference, but during the clubhouse availability today, were much more convincing and sincere than the ones that Bregman and Altuve offered, Bregman in particular, during the, the presser today. I think, you know, Carlos Correa was pretty 
contrite in a way that I found convincing. I think you're right that it's hard to envision a version of this that would satisfy everyone. And I don't say that like people are obligated to forgive them for what they did, but I do think that they were sort of in a spot where there wasn't going to be a good apology, although I think that they still managed to a lot of the time deliver apologies that were wanting even by that standard. But yeah, like I bet Alex Bregman's going to get hit in the butt a lot this year. I'll be curious to see what the league's reaction to that is because I would imagine that the frequency with which it'll happen will probably prompt some kind of reaction from the commissioner's office. Although I, you know, they have by by virtue of deciding not to suspend any of the players involved, I think kind of invited some in-game retaliation by unwritten rule standards because people are still very angry. So I'm going to be curious to see how Manfred responds to all the plunking that I imagine will come. I wonder how early in games umpires will decide to issue warnings around that. That'll be interesting too. Yeah. But I'm looking forward to the signs because I'm going to get a couple thousand words out of that for sure. I would, I guess the last thing that I'll add, and I hope this doesn't sound like a proselytizing because that's not what I'm trying to do. But I think that people are allowed to feel how they do about the explicit discipline that MLB has handed the Astros sufficient, insufficient, however you feel about it. There are a lot of different ways to talk about it. And I think that that's fine. Don't ignore the psychological consequences of this on these players. They're going to constantly be asked about it. It's going to hang over probably their entire careers. Yeah. And I'm not saying I feel – well, yeah, I am. And I at some point I'm going to feel bad for a lot of these guys. It's a lot. Like it's like Justine Sacco's tweets. They're horrible. But like that person suffered afterward, you know, and you can just – there's just an endless stream of – what what are Alex Bregman's mention? What have they been like? Yeah. You know, if he's willing sure. to look at them, they're just going to be horrible forever. And yeah, that's that's sort of you know a stocks and pillory and there's it has that sort of nature to it. And don't ignore that that is also going to occur. So you know, even if you feel that the punitive damage is insufficient, just keep in mind that like these are people and they're gonna. F- they're going to feel it. I know that their apologies don't – it doesn't seem like they feel it. Sometimes dudes don't – like accessing shame and remorse when you're like a hyper competitive person is hard, right? We There are a lot of athletes who put chips on their shoulder that they have fabricated. And so I would expect some of the Astros players to do that. Too, right? Michael Jordan, Tom Brady, all these folks right. who the nobody believed in us chip on their shoulder is totally manifested from thin air. It's of their own making. And I'm sure there will be some el- elements of that that we interact with at some point too, but I'm not saying you have to be kind to Astros players, but these folks are going to suffer from the way the culture discusses them and their careers. It's the punishment is far from being totally doled out, I think. So yeah, I hope that we collectively get through this as a sport because there's just so much other stuff worth our time that is not like this. It doesn't make you feel icky. Yeah. Well, we're at just a little over an hour, so I think we will wrap up. It is Friday when people are listening to this, which means they have experienced the bulk of our 
Prospect Week coverage, including Fantasy Friday, which we're excited about. So in addition to Eric's very good prospect-driven analysis, there is a redraft fantasy ranking and a dynasty top 100, courtesy of our good friends over at Roto and accompanying articles with those. So be sure to check those out. And we're not quite done with Prospect Week. On Monday, Dan will be revealing his Zips top 100 prospects. So we'll get to see what the computer thinks. And then Eric, you will have an update on upcoming international stuff, uh, including a board update and and also a piece. So people should check that stuff out. And then we will be done with prospect week, but right into draft coverage because it just never ends. Uh, And the rest of our lists. Eric, what's the next cluster of teams on the list side that we're looking at? Oh, good question. The Tampa pod is... You know, for those who aren't aware, the way that I've been going about doing the list this year is based on geographic location of the spring training site in minor league complexes, which is just a thing that I was trying to try to make sourcing a little bit easier. Talking about players who hung in extended spring training or you know, were in rookie ball or played during instructional league. You know, if I call the scout to talk about teams in the AL Central. And all right, you know, tell me about all the Twins players that are were on the complex this year. Then all right, I'll call you in a couple of weeks to talk about the Red Sox players who were also in Fort Myers. Like that just wasn't an efficient way of doing it. So yeah. now it's tell me about the Red Sox and Twins players in Fort Myers all at one time. And so the Tampa group is next. Baltimore is done. This will include Pittsburgh, the Yankees, the Blue Jays, the Phillies, and uh, then we'll be done with Florida. Cool. And then we'll move on to the different, you know, the various clusters in Arizona. And the first one up will be the Northwest Valley, which is Texas, Seattle, San Diego, and cool. Kansas City. Yep. And that's so, how yeah. we'll continue doing it going forward. It's been pretty good. Yeah, I think it has has worked really nicely in terms of reducing redundant calls. So that part's good. So we'll have more lists coming. We'll have draft coverage coming. We'll have just various bits and bobs that are prospect related. People should pre-order Eric and Kylie's book. We'll include a link to that in this. So uh, is your your ironically named promo over now? (laughs) The future value 20. That was, that's just funny. I think that is over, yeah. Yeah, but people should pre-order the book just anyway, even without a discount code, because it's good, so they should read it. What else you got? Just sleeping. Yeah, okay. So... Sleeping and trying to take, you know, reboot my body, which has just been hunched in the office chair for, I mean, you know, Tuesday was bad. Tuesday was not yeah. good. But I love it. I do. I'm not complaining. I love it. I do. It's just time to fix some stuff now. Um, <laughs> maybe I'll go get a, a, my first ever massage. Oh, boy. Well, we won't ask your opinion of that on the next Fangraphs Audio, but we will have you back on the program soon. Thanks for hanging out for an hour, and folks, go read all the prospect stuff. Sure, Meg. See you guys. 